Testing one, two, three, here I go. Give me that microphone. Welcome to the Makeup Artist Chronicle, where we are demystifying the hype in the beauty industry and giving it to you real. I'm your host, Julia Lupin. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome back to the Makeup Artist Chronicle. I am so sorry that I ghosted you. There hasn't been a new episode in a few weeks. My sincerest apologies about that. I recently left a very toxic work environment and I just felt so overwhelmed with everything that had to do with being on the computer, being on social media, just being some days. So I needed to take a step back and just regroup, go through the grieving process and come back refreshed with a game plan. That being said, I probably should have notified you that I needed to take a step back. So I'm sorry I did not. Thank you for being here regardless. It's Black History Month and it's the end of Black History Month. Now, in this episode, I want to talk about some of the incredible Black women in the beauty industry and the beauty space throughout history. Now, my general opinion of Black History Month is that it's too short. It's the month of February. It's the shortest month, but also Black history is a part of American history, and it's a part of global world history. And so I think it's important to educate yourself much as I have been on the figures and the events in history that maybe have been whitewashed from the textbooks. So some of the women I'm going to talk about you may be familiar with, some of them you may not have ever heard of, but I have been really looking into researching and educating myself on black history for a while, these recent few years, I feel like I definitely lived in ignorance for much of my early life, my childhood. And then I kind of began to realize what my privilege looked like and what it allowed me to be able to accomplish. And in recent years, I've, I've crossed over to the commitment of, of doing the anti-racist work and committing to being an anti racist. So I'm very excited to talk about these subjects. Here's the thing. I know that this is a non-exhaustive list and I know there aren't really a lot of references out there, historical references for some of the people I'm going to talk about. So there will be a post on the website, muachronicle.com that will be open for comments. So if you have any notes, comments, things that I got wrong, or if there are people that I did not talk about and you want to add them, please head into the comments of that post and do so at muachronicle.com. But without further ado, let's launch into it and let's start off really quick rapid fire with some firsts. These are the black women in the beauty space and even the fashion space that were the first to 
do the thing, which will make sense once we get into it. The first black woman to be on the cover of Vogue. Her name is Beverly Johnson. Vanessa Williams was the first black woman to win Miss America. Maria Borges was the first model to walk in the Victoria's Secret runway show with her natural hair. Look it up. She is stunning. Trina Parks was the first black Bond girl in the James Bond films. She played Thumper in Diamonds Are Forever. Veronica Webb was the first black woman to have a major beauty deal with Revlon. Bernadine Anderson was the first black makeup artist, and she paved the way for so many others, including Dame Pat McGrath, who became not only the first black makeup artist to get a damehood from the British royal family, but the first makeup artist in general. And of course, Madam C.J. Walker, who is the first black woman self-made millionaire on record. Now, there are some other millionaires we're going to talk about that were alive at that time, but Madam C.J. Walker is in the Guinness Book of World Records for this. There is quite a bit of information about her, and there's even a mini-series that tells her story. So we're not going to talk about her on this episode, but if you have resources about her that you want to share, please go ahead and do so on the post. So shout out to these women. Again, I know that there are so many other firsts in the beauty, fashion, entertainment spaces. Please head to muachronicle.com and drop their names in the comment section of this post. Now, without further ado, let's go a little bit deeper in some of the integral, integral women who changed the beauty industry as we know it. Buckle up. This is going to be a fun ride. There are five in total, and I can't wait to tell you about them. The first is Annie Malone, who is arguably the real first self-made black female millionaire. Annie was born in 1877 as the 10th of 11 children. And from a very early age, she was left without her parents. She was also a very ill child and she fell sick often. It was actually because she fell sick so often that she missed a lot of school and had to be pulled out. But she did recall that when she was in school, she had a very, very strong affinity to chemistry, which is something that would definitely pay off for her down the line. So She is out of school. She's practicing hairdressing with her sister, and she realizes that she has a very strong love and talent for it. So between practicing hairdressing with her sister and having an affinity for chemistry, Annie starts going into product development. At this time, black women were using goose fat, bacon grease, and other heavy oils to straighten their hair, which was very damaging to the hair and to the scalp. So Annie essentially developed and manufactured her own line of non-damaging hair straighteners, special oils, and hair stimulant products for black women. She named this the Wonderful Hair Grower. She then started selling these products door-to-door in her Illinois community. And very quickly, business boomed. It boomed so much that Annie hired three people to work for her and actually moved her business to St. Louis, St. Louis, St. Louis, correct me there, where they all went door to door selling wonderful hair grower. And Annie had such a mind for business. 
she thought a really great marketing strategy would be to give away a teaser treatment for free in order to attract more customers. Word of mouth very quickly spread and she was so successful that Annie was able to open her first brick and mortar shop in 1902. She was 25 years old. Then she launched a wide advertising campaign. She held news conferences. She toured through the South and she recruited and trained many women to sell her products. Fun fact, one of these women was Madam C.J. Walker. C.J. Walker actually had a falling out with Annie and left the company, but took the proprietary formula with her to create her own product line. This led Annie to patent her Poro formula, as it was called, and spoke out against fraudulent imitations. In 1918, Annie established Poro College, a cosmetology school and center. It included a manufacturing plant, a retail store, business offices, a 500-seat auditorium, dining and meeting rooms, a roof garden, dormitory, gymnasium, bakery, and chapel. It also served the Black community to host religious and social functions. So Annie created much more than a business. She helped her community. The college also created jobs for 75,000 women in North America, South America, Africa, and the Philippines. In the 1920s, Annie became one of the first black female self-made millionaires, but in 1957, when she died, Annie's estate was estimated at only $100,000, which she left to her nieces and nephews since she had no children of her own. The reason for this financial decline is because a lot of people sued her for a stake in her company, starting with her first husband during their divorce, and then some former employees. There are actually some records of people who were close to Annie saying that she laid her trust in people who used it to take advantage of her and take her money and part of her organization, her company. Honestly, none of this really affected Annie, though, because even when she was rich, she lived modestly, and she chose to reinvest a lot of her money back into her business and donate a lot of the rest of it. So she was resilient, much like a lot, actually all of the women mentioned in today's episode. Annie also gave thousands of dollars to the local black YMCA and the Howard University College of Medicine in Washington, D.C. She was also a benefactor of the St. Louis Colored Orphans Home, which was renamed the Annie Malone Children and Family Service Center in 1946. Considering she was an orphan herself, this was a cause that was very close to her heart. Malone is actually her married name when she remarried. Um, She got married a second time, and that marriage was a true love match for her. So throughout her time as a business leader, Annie ensured that her employees, who were all Black, were paid well and given opportunities for advancement. Our hats off to you, Miss Annie Malone. The next maverick in the industry that I want to talk about is Marjorie Joyner. Marjorie was born in 1896, and she's the granddaughter of a slave and a white slave owner. Her parents split up when she was nine, and when she was 16, Marjorie moved to Chicago to live with her mom. In 1914, when she was 18, Marjorie received a certificate for dramatic art and expression from Chicago Musical College before she went to study cosmetology 
at A.B. Moeller Beauty School two years later, and she was the first black graduate of the school. After graduating, she opened her own beauty salon, but it was a few years later when she started working as a sales rep for Madam C.J. Walker that her career really expanded. By 1920, Marjorie was the national advisor to 200 of C.J. Walker's beauty schools. Marjorie's contributions to the beauty space are immense. She helped write the first cosmetology laws for the state of Illinois. She co-founded Alpha Chi Pi Omega, which is a sorority and fraternity dedicated to the advancement and promotion of the beauty industry. She also co-founded the United Beauty School Owners and Teachers Association, which is a national association for black beauticians. In the 1940s, Marjorie was an advisor to the DNC, the Democratic National Convention or Committee, for several New Deal agencies specifically looking to help advance black women. One of the things that Marjorie is most known for is leading the development of new products, including the permanent wave machine. So in 1939, Marjorie started looking for an easier way for women to curl their hair. So she invented that way. She designed a table that would either curl or straighten hair with the results lasting a few days. Now, the original design wasn't comfortable for her clients, so she iterated on it and created a new version that included a scalp protector. Once filing and being granted a patent for her machine, Marjorie became the first black woman to receive a patent. However, the patent was credited to C.J. Walker's company, and Marjorie received almost no money from it. Marjorie's legacy is strong, with the Smithsonian Institute having an exhibit in its Inventors Gallery that features the Perm Machine as well as a replica of Marjorie's original salon, and the city of Chicago declared October 24th to be Marjorie Stewart Joyner Day. They did this on October 24th at Marjorie's 95th birthday. At the age of 98 in the year 1994, Marjorie passed away, but we should definitely keep her legacy alive. She just pushed the limits on what women and specifically black women are capable of when you give them the space. So let's give them that space and those opportunities and our support. The next three women that I learned about don't have a lot on record in terms of their earlier lives, but their accomplishments speak for themselves. If you happen to have resources or know of their earlier lives, please head to the website, check out the post for this episode at muachronicle.com, add them in the comments, or shoot us an email at muachronicle at gmail.com. Another hair entrepreneur at this time was Christina Jenkins. Christina was born in 1920 in Louisiana, and the only thing we really know about her early life is that she graduated from college with a science degree in 1943. What science? We don't really know, and unfortunately, her alma mater closed in 1960, so those records are not available. In fact, the records of Christina historically really start in 1949 in Chicago 
where she was working for a wig manufacturer. While there, she worked on a technique that could help keep the wigs more securely on women's heads. At the time, women were using pins and grips to keep their wigs on. Not only was it not reliable, but it also looked a little bit bulky and not that natural. So Christina was interested in a method that would prevent slipping and look more natural than the bulky pins. So she started looking at techniques that included sewing stitches of hair into women's existing natural hair, aka sew-ins, aka weaves. The technique she settled on included three cords and a device called a weaving frame, which created a natural weft to attach hair to. In 1951, Christina filed a patent for, quote, permanently attaching commercial hair to live hair, end quote. And according to the registration documents, she called it the hair weave, W-E-E-V-E. The method listed on the patent includes, quote, interweaving strands of live hair and strands of commercial hair with cord-like material to permanently join the strands. Once granted the patent, Christina traveled across the U.S. and Europe teaching the hair weave technique to other hairstylists. She even opened her very own salon. It was called Christina's Hair Weave Penthouse Salon in Cleveland, Ohio. Christina passed away in 2003, so a little less than two decades ago, at the age of 82. But her contribution to the hair industry and the beauty space was revolutionary, allowing black men and women to express themselves like never before. And it is a technique and a mainstay that has lived on to this day. The next woman I want to talk about was actually new to me, but some of you may know her. She is a powerhouse in the publishing space, and her name is Eunice Walker Johnson. Eunice was born in 1916 in Alabama, and she is another maverick who we don't really know much about before her successes. We do know that she had a college degree in sociology and a master's in social work. She also interned at publishing houses as well as some design houses. She opted to go down a publishing route. So side by side with her husband, John H. Johnson, they established a publication company about and for the black people in America. Johnson Publishing Company is best known for launching the monthly magazine Ebony, which is still in publication to this day, as well as the weekly magazine Jet, which has switched to digital only as of 2014. Historian Brenna Wynn Greer has said that, quote, Ebony had the power to publish information of both great significance and minor meaning, and with that, changed the narrative about Black people in the United States, which it very much did, end quote. In addition to the publications, Eunice also created the Ebony Fashion Fair, which is probably one of the things that she's most known for. It was a traveling fashion show that set the pace for black fashion for half a century. It actually started as a fundraiser in 1958 as one event. It was meant to raise money for a hospital in New Orleans. It quickly expanded from that one event to a fashion tour of 200 cities across the United States, Canada, and the Caribbean. It raised over $50 million for charity. 
The fashion tour was a big pioneer in using black models on the runway and highlighting the work of black designers. It was also at these shows that Eunice realized how hard it was to find makeup for her models, so she created it herself. Fashion Fair Cosmetics came to life in 1973 as a line of makeup that would be sold in department stores, and it was made especially for women of color. When remembering Eunice for NPR, Andre Leon Talley, who you may know as being huge in the world of Vogue, said, Mrs. Johnson was smart enough as a businesswoman, as a visionary, to take color and translate it to the needs of women of many hues. Everything with Mrs. Johnson became a celebration of who we are, of who black women were. He also went on to say that she would take the trends that luxury fashion houses like YSL and others of the time, and she would translate it into a value-based option. So essentially, she created beauty for women of all different budgets. And Tally said she made sure that Ebony Fashion Fair products were for people of all walks of life. He also mentioned, quote, her world of style not only was about the proper or most extraordinary dresses from Paris or jacket or sequined evening gown, she also was one of the first African-American women to have a Picasso in her living room in Chicago. So the woman knew luxury, she understood luxury, she loved luxury. In this piece by NPR, It's quoted that Eunice and John Johnson were black royalty. They were an essential part of the cultural life of black America. Quote, she wasn't really a celebrity. To a kid on the south side of Chicago, she was as close to the queen mother as you could get. End quote. Though Eunice died in 2010 at the age of 93, Her daughter, Linda Johnson Rice, carries on her publishing legacy as CEO of Johnson Publishing Company. Rest in power, Eunice W. Johnson. The final badass black woman that I want to talk about today is Rose Meta Morgan. I have taken to calling her the hustler. Now, don't get me wrong, all of these women hustled. They were on the grind. But I think Rose was kind of the Rihanna of her time. Rose was born in 1912 to a father who was a former sharecropper. And from an early age, she showed a soul for business. When she was 10 years old, Rose began making artificial flowers and convincing neighborhood children to sell them door to door. By age 14, she knew that she wanted to go into the beauty trade. So after graduating beauty school, Rose had the opportunity to do hair on famed actress and singer Ethel Waters. Ethel really liked the results, so she asked Rose to come to New York with her. And this is where we see Rose's enterprise just skyrocket. It was there that Rose rented her first chair and very quickly worked her way to owning her own salon, which she named Rose Meta's House of Beauty in the Sugar Hill neighborhood of Harlem. This quickly became the largest Black-owned salon and grossed more than $3 million in sales in its very short few first years. Rose's marketing game was strong. She went against the signs of the times, which anglicized beauty, and I would argue we still live in those times. And her message was clear. 
Come as you are, because as you are is beautiful. That's the essence of her message. That's not the actual verbiage. Rose also launched her own line of makeup, which she sold in the salons, and she would stage fashion shows where she would show the whole Luke. During this time, Rose met Olivia Clark, another black woman who was making waves in the skincare space in New York. The two struck a deal and opened a newer, bigger salon together with even more services. The new salon was called Rose Morgan's House of Beauty, with Rose maintaining two-thirds ownership and Olivia having one-third. Whereas Rose Meta's House of Beauty was in an old, vacant, potentially haunted mansion, Rose Morgan's House of Beauty opened in a more stylish setting with a dressmaking department and a charm school in addition to other salon services. In the early 1960s, Rose even added a wig salon. Rose had very high expectations for the 3,000 employees that she had trained and employed at the time, including that no one was to refer to clients by their first names. Instead, everyone would be addressed formally, which, come to think of it, she would probably hate that I'm calling everyone on this show by their first names. I am... Very sorry, Mrs. Morgan. Even though she was super successful, she was still denied loans from banks. Anytime she tried to expand her business, they would turn her away due to her race. But where there is a problem, she finds a solution. And in 1965, Mrs. Morgan went on to be one of the founders of New York's only Black-owned commercial bank, the Freedom National Bank. Rose retired in the 70, in her 70s and lived the remainder of her life to the fullest until she died in 2008. At the age of 96, the New York Times devoted a beautiful obituary to her, and in it she was quoted as saying, I never denied myself anything. I traveled all over the world. I did all the things I wanted to do. May we all have the courage and vivaciousness of Miss Rose Meta Morgan. Mrs. Rose Meta Morgan. So yeah, if you have any more context to fill in or any more people that you want the world to know about, my knowledge base is expanding every day and I'm going to try my best to keep the post on the MUA Chronicle as dynamic as possible. Please add your entries into the comments, your comments into the comments, and I will also keep adding black female entrepreneurs in the beauty space onto that post as I come to learn about them. Lex and I, my co-host on our other podcast, we talked about some other black figures that history in terms of the textbooks don't really teach us or glaze over and they are not restricted to the beauty space. So please check out our other podcast, The Peony, for that. It's a really fun episode. And as we wrap up Black History Month, there is something that I noticed that some brands are doing. Sephora is doing this. Ulta is doing this, where they're highlighting Black-owned beauty brands. But I want to encourage you to shop Black-owned beauty brands even outside of the month of February, especially outside of the month of February. And here's the thing, Sephora, I'm disappointed in you. You have under 10 black owned beauty lines that you stock. Disappointing. 
And Ulta, you're a little bit better and you have a a variety of price points, but you put your Black-owned business listing all the way in the bottom of the kind of options menu. And honestly, I think we could be doing better. If you want to support Black-owned businesses, of course, you can shop those sections of Sephora and Ulta, but also there are really, really incredible marketplaces that are specifically devoted to Black-owned and Brown-owned beauty businesses. So my personal favorite is 13 Loon. I love it so much. I know I've spoken about it in the past, and I am so excited to shop it. I buy something from there, I think maybe once every every two weeks, once every paycheck, which I really need to curb because I left my job. So I'm kind of just spending my fiance's paychecks, but that's fine. Definitely, definitely check out 13 Loon. It is an incredible marketplace. And for the Makeup Artist Chronicle, as you may know, we don't have any ads here. I don't read off any ad spots, This podcast is 100% listener supported. Well, that and I throw in some personal coins, just like the amazing women who invested in themselves on this episode. If you're able to, and if you'd like to, please head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash M-U-A-C podcast, all one word, and throw some coinage our way. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, etc., etc., please shoot us an email, muachronicle at gmail.com, head to the website, muachronicle.com, or hit us up on any and all social media at muachronicle. We try to keep the branding consistent. Thank you so much for being here and for listening to this week's episode of the Makeup Artist Chronicle. I I'm going to keep this conversation open. I hope you'll join me for it. And I'll see you next week for a brand new episode where I have a special guest and a really insightful and dynamic and beautiful interview. She's a female founder. She's a maker. She's a businesswoman. And I just find her so fascinating. So please tune in for that. Talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. And tell your friends about the Makeup Artist Chronicle too. You can always get more content on Instagram at MUA Chronicle, so don't forget to follow me there. Talk to you soon.